Hello, I'm John Kelly, and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. And that's Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill together from the album The Lonesome Touch from 1997 and uh, Paddy Fahey's Real. And Martin Hayes with me tonight in studio picking all the records. Great to have you here, Martin. Great to be here. Been hoping to do this for a while, but you are one of the hardest working men in show business by a long, <laughs> by a long way. It's good, good you're here. We're just talking about that while that was playing. I remember that coming out, 97, playing it on the radio. Um, everybody, everybody loved it. It was it was it was different at the time. It was so just. Well, one of the things people kept commenting on was everything's kind of slow, yeah. slowed down. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. calm. Yeah. And you were saying to me though that even though that's a real, that's the way Paddy Fahey might have played it. More or less. I mean, he played that music quite slowly, and there was a kind of a form of music at East Galway that um, that that did play in that much slower, much more open way. And the tunes like that never struck me as a dance tune. And if we weren't going to dance to it, we might as well actually hear the structure of the melody. So to hear the melody properly, it felt like it made sense to kind of not play it any faster than was necessary. You know, yeah. Just let that let the melody speak for itself. Yeah. Well, let's start, though, however, at the beginning, uh, or, or right back at the start, because mm. you're, you've, you've got some great music chosen on your list here. Mm. I'm just looking at it, and it's from all different places and different genres. But we're starting off with Paddy Canning and P.J. Hayes. That's right. So tell me who those fine gentlemen were. Well, P.J. Hayes is my father, uh-huh. and uh, Paddy Canning is my uncle, married uh-huh. to my father's sister. And uh, this was an album of music made in 1959, I believe, and um, and it, Peter O'Loughlin is also on this album. He's a flute player, but ha- one side of the LP was just two fiddles and piano, and the other side was two fiddles, piano, and flute. And uh, I've just chosen the two fiddle side here because there's a tune here called Rolling in the Barrel of the Tap Room um, because they're part of uh, the first medley I, I think Dennis and I recorded them on the Lonesome Touch, but it's also on the opening set of the Gloaming as well. So, but here, this is the first album I ever listened to as a child. My uncle and my father playing the fiddles together. So. <laughs> Martin Hayes is with me in studio tonight, picking all the tracks and his first choice, Rolling in the Barrel in the Tap Room, the Earl's Chair, performed there by his dad, by PJ Hayes, and his uncle, Paddy Canny, 
uh, Bridie Lafferty on some seriously funky piano in there, Martin. Right. No, we were just we were just talking while that was on. It occurred to me that you know if you put together an album with the Loaming or an album with the Common Ground Ensemble, mm-hmm. you know you've got people flying in from all around the world, and you've got the best of studios, and you've got a big plan and a budget yeah. and all the rest of it. Uh, do you do you know in what circumstances your dad made that record? Because it was 1950. What? Nine fifty nine. I I know that they were picking the tunes on the way up in the car. Right. And I know that when they got here, they went to a studio. And when they got to the studio, the amount of time booked was the length of an album. Wow. No pressure, right? Well, they only got one or two tracks recorded, and the guy says, "Your time is up now." So it was over. So they go, "Well, we." And so they in that they had to go and find another studio that day to finish the album. Wow. So they found another studio somewhere, but there was no engineer. Uh, but there was a fellow that could turn the machine on and off. A bit like in here. Yeah. yeah. So they had a guy for turning the machine on and off, and uh, they decided to do the mixing themselves because there was just one microphone. So they put the microphone in the center of the room, and they placed themselves as they imagined they should in proportion in relation to the microphone, mm. and they proceeded to make the remainder of the album. And you reckon? Well, you don't reckon it's it's a theory that this may be the first LP of traditional Irish music. I, I think done here in Ireland in of Ireland, traditional yeah. music. Yeah, somebody said. Well, it's certainly, if not the first one, right in the vanguard there, like you know, of of, of recorded uh, uh, LPs at the time. You know? And what would the motivation have been? Do you think, Martin, in making this LP? Um, I think they had. I think originally, the O'Neill brothers had had this record company called Dublin Records and uh, but they were based out in New York um, and they wanted Paddy Canny to make an album but Paddy and my father used to play a lot together and Paddy didn't like the pressure of doing a solo album it seemed so he brought his friends along which was my father and uh, Padro Lachlan and Bridie Lafferty so it was it was meant to be Paddy Canny but he decided it was going to be this instead. Now these people, of course, became your were your teachers, I guess. And but yeah, but yeah. In, in what way w- were you taught? I mean, did you just pick it up by being with them, or were you actually sat down and shown how to do things? No, I wasn't really sat. Well, if like the way it worked was, my father taught me a handful of tunes, you know, and um, and basically I I kind of got interested, and it, it usually occurred when I'd ask for a tune. Mm-hmm. or like try to, to get him to teach me a tune. And then I, I sat myself, as time went on, I sat myself with records and 78s and gramophone records and all kinds of things. I would just sit there and try to learn tunes off of records. And, and what know, it, oh, just hearing it, you know, you're just like, you're almost kind of just around it, in it, and you're trying to figure it out, trying to become it. You're, you're kind of left to your own devices to figure out how to actually make yeah. the instrument work and and how to get around it. Now, as anybody, any parent will know, the violin is not the most uh, wonderful sound in the hands of a small child. Well, it can be a pretty ugly thing, yeah. Yeah, whereas, you know, there are other instruments that that do sound like themselves. (laughs) Yeah, straight away. The piano sounds like the piano when you touch it, you know, but the fiddle. And was it, would it have been the same for you? I mean, when you picked it up first? Oh, yeah, of course. And like, not alone would it have been the same for me, but I, I, I showed very little natural skill at all. Really? With this. Yeah, no, I didn't, didn't look like I would ever figure it out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and what age were you then when you started? I, I think I started at about seven. Yeah. And um, and I kind of didn't make much progress till about 12 or 13. And why did you stick with it? Um, I kind of, you see, I think growing up around it, 
I yeah. first of all, I loved the music. I I loved that album, for example. Mm. At age eight, I loved it. That 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 album wasn't in the house first. Um, my mother had lived in England, and um, some years later, her record player showed up. So there was no record player in the house, and along with that record player, finally came the copy of the of the record, which my father did not have a copy of. And and then I heard that album for the first time, so it was like I was hearing a soundtrack from before I was born, mm. of my father, you know, and Petty Kenny. And so I grew to love that album, and I grew to love those sounds and love that music. And then Santa Claus brought me a fiddle, and I identified as a fiddle player, and I wanted to be that. I wa- and so I wanted it, but I wasn't doing what I had to do to get there. But I was also unwilling to let go of my identification with that yeah. and that idea. So I eventually pushed through and persisted and just pushed myself over that edge, you know. Well, you wanted it is the answer, I isn't it? it? Yeah, I wanted because, exactly. because a lot of kids don't really. That's the key. Wanting is everything, you know. Now, your next choice, Martin, is uh, Tony McMahon and Noel Hill. Yeah. It's rare we would have a conversation without Tony McMahon's name coming up at some point. Yeah, because um, he's a huge figure um, in traditional Irish music as a broadcaster, as a collector, as a kind of a mentor, as a musician. I mean, I think he's an astonishing musician. It's hard. I mean, maybe his slow air playing is absolutely astounding. But the the track I've chosen is not a slow air because I, it brings me to another facet of my life, which is that... Um, soon after I w- had begun to play and was up to a certain level, I started traveling with the Cayley Band, the Tully Cayley Band, my father's band. And um, and we played for set dancers. And there was a wildness and an energy and a kind of a dialogue with the dancer that created a kind of a spontaneity and, and a meaning, let's say, because now you knew what you were doing when you were playing the music. You were trying to lift these dancers off the yeah. floor. You were trying to kind of engage in this dialogue with that experience. And uh, Tony McMahon and Noel Hill made an absolutely wonderful album um, in terms of capturing the atmosphere and the feeling of this set dance and the connection to the spontaneous rhythm that occurs on the floor from these dancers, which I feel like I've learned a lot from. The Ash Plant. Plant, Tony McMahon and Noel Hill the choice of Martin Hayes is with me in studio Martin you can hear the dancers on there and it does add something but yeah. I, I, I asked you a question which if I'd asked it off a Byron player they might have hit me but I was I was asking the question and it hadn't really occurred to me before is is the Byron meant to be actually somehow connected to what the sound of the people the dancers feet should be doing I, I think so now the Byron wasn't a popular instrument in Clare when I was growing up um, but uh, the the I, it was largely almost kind of ceremonial. Like we had it for the renbys more yeah, than yeah. we did for for in actual sessions of music at the time. So it would have had a, I imagine it having a ceremonial history in some ways. But the rhythm section that I knew was that was mm. the feet on the floor of the dancers, and uh, in West Clare in particular and up around Ina and uh, Kilmaley and in East Clare also. 
there was just a wonderful tradition of this. And also in southeast Galway, too, there was a, a great set dancing. And then, of course, in Galway, there was the Shanos dancing, which is very in Connemara, I suppose, which would also be similarly rhythmic. So I had this kind of... I, when I was trying to kind of later on in my life decipher music and decipher the rhythm and pulse of this, I decided that... Um, the pulse and the natural rhythm was something that could be deciphered from the natural response of the dancer, mm -hmm. the unpremeditated, you know, just like human physical response. And so that has become the kind of the defining, the way in which I deciphered the, 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 the pulse of this music. It's so the, the dance rhythm. And that's, like, it, that's, that's in you. And that's th it. Yeah. That's a very important part of what I do. Even when I'm playing l slow and lyrically, I'm still keeping the tune. Like with that Paddy Fahey tune, you know, I was going, dum, 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 But I was actually going, dum, 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 You know, it's, you know, and I'm still, if I was playing for dance, I'm going, you know, yeah. and and so the 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 like what I learned from my early teenage years was like profound in a sense in terms of getting that particular swing and rhythm into my body, into my bow hand, and uh, making it an internal reality for myself. What age were you when you joined the Tullochilly band? I think I was about thirteen. Yeah. Like it kind of coincided with secondary school and uh, it became my escape from the burdens of secondary school life. <laughs> and yet, you know, I think for a lot of people listening, maybe uh, who are musicians, traditional musicians, the, the idea of a Cayley band might even be connected to school. I mean, there were school Cayley bands yeah. and and the Cayley band kind of had developed a sense of or a perception that it was kind of corny and it was old hat and it was all those not things. No, I know, but I'm not. No, I'm <laughs> you not, don't have to be delicate. Yeah, like John, but but, but I course, know. Yes. I, I was, I was, yes. I, I, like, I, I understand that. I mean, I was saying to somebody the other day, I was in Japan and I did an interview and a very perceptive question was asked of me by a Japanese interviewer. Says, uh, "You were in a Kelly band uh, when you were a teenager, and the Bothy band and Planksty and Sean O'Reilly that were happening. How did you feel?" <laughs> and I was going, "Okay, all right. Well, I didn't feel good because, the, like, all intelligent life seemed to be rebelling against the Kelly band and the burden of it and uh, yeah. what he was actually doing. But and." There would be plenty of good argument for that. I wouldn't argue against that. But there was also a social function yeah. that this Kelly band was occupying. And there was also an, a free, unrestrained um, interaction with the dancer that we were not having. Yeah. And where the other music was going was that it was actually completely separating itself uh, from this uh, so social, cultural milieu that... that the music was so intimately connected. Yeah. But it was like bebop and big band separating themselves, you know. Mm. And uh, so I, like I was on the, I was in the Kaylee band, so I, I was with the thing that wasn't hip. And in, in my school days, uh, music was not part of the program at school. So you basically kept your musical life as hidden and as quiet and unknown as possible. And you never talked about playing the fiddle at any stage. So in school, I just kind of kept as low a profile around that as possible. 
And yet, you know, you mentioned the, the you know, bebop and big band, and, and it's a good analogy, all right. And yet it makes me think that so many of uh, the jazz musicians nowadays who have come through, bebop mm -hmm. and post-bop mm -hmm. and all the rest of it, they're the ones who keep saying, hang on a minute, we used to dance to this music. Correct. And they're trying to bring back that Don't idea. forget that. like Because like, like the, the, when you hear the modern bebop player still had the, the rhythm mm. of that experience. But if you just learn bebop from bebop, yeah. uh, you won't have that rhythm. And as subtle and all as it is, something is lacking. And I, you could say, arguably, in traditional music, there, there's a similar argument as well that, that um, uh, you know, that, that we, we may in fact be have disconnected our music from the dance way too much. Mm. You know? mm. And of course, you mentioned the social aspect for you as well. Mm. must have been great to play with your father. It was fantastic. And we became like beyond father and son, like we became kind of colleagues mm. to each other. And um, he was a mentor and a support and uh, somebody he, you know, ran his ideas by me and we he confided in me and we drove many, many late hours uh, from Sligo to Clare. I remember driving back on late Saturday nights uh, from, I think, Castle in, in Sligo. And uh, we get back and it was five o'clock in the morning. And my father says to me, we might as well go out for the cows now. And we would like peel off the performance clothing, put on the, the work clothes, go out and get the cows because it was early milking on a Sunday morning. That happened a lot. And um, so it was kind of an, like an all night experience then, you know, we'd have we're no bed at all, out to the cows, after Great. cows, off to mess, then back. Be great at that age, though, Lunch. too, actually. Then you know, big sleep, I can tell you. <laughs> but when you think, you think the, the, the experience of most people, most mm -hmm. sons and fathers mm -hmm. from that era is not talking to each other at all. It seems so, know? yeah. No, we, I mean, it's not like our relationship was perfect. For God, like, I was cantankerous and independent-minded and difficult, and he was whatever he was, and we, we had plenty of fights and arguments, but we ultimately were hugely... Um, well, fights proud and of each other, you know. I was proud of him. He was proud of me. That's terrific. And but uh, even the fights and arguments, it's better than nothing. Oh yeah, 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 you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Because you know a lot. That's of, true. It's actually it's engagement anyway. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> kids, you know, kids that age are kind of pulling away from what their oh, parents are about. Yeah, and, uh, I, I actually, it was kind of a choice you have in life. In that, um, at that age, I could have pulled away, yeah. like my contemporaries. But actually, I got drawn into the old people's world. Yeah. And I became like a conservative in a sense. Yeah. I, I decided to go with the old ways, the old people. I identified with the old musicians. I identified with the Cayley bands, with the music, the musicians, the, everything. That And so I, I just, oh, I said, screw this modern thing. Just forget about it, you know. And I, I just was, my friends were like 50 and 60 years of age. Brilliant. And my colleagues that I was playing with. Now I had some young musicians I played with too, but, but lots of old people. You weren't wrong. No, I suppose not. Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, it's a strange choice to make at that age, but yeah. Your next choice is Tommy Potts. Now, we've been talking about music from from Clare and mm -hmm. Tommy Potts, you know, the Liffey Banks and all of that. Yeah. He, he's a musician that, you know, a lot of people that aren't in traditional, in traditional music will never have heard. And yet, once you're inside that world, Tommy Potts is like the John Coltrane. Like, he's, he's well, he the is, man. Yeah. He is the man. I mean, what is it about Tommy Potts and where did all that come from? We're going to hear a track from him yeah. in just a moment, but what should we be watching out for here with Tommy Potts? Well, 
Tommy Potts was um, an eccentric man, I think, but a man who found some freedom. He didn't give a damn about others. Now, he needed a handful of listeners, and he got them, and he used to come to my house when he was when I was a young child, and he would visit Paddy Canny, Peter Rockland, the same people from that recording, yeah. and he would visit, you know, if there was a few more musicians in County Clare, and he would spend a few days there and play for us. We didn't play. We just listened. And he just broke the form of the music and went into um, a kind of a, an ecstatic state almost and just played things completely governed by passion and feeling yeah. and was unbounded by convention, by the previous means of playing these tunes. And just, uh, I think, uh, I experienced a deep freedom. And yet you, you said, you know, that you were conservative mm -hmm. musically and, mm. you know, presumably a lot of the musicians you were playing with mm -hmm. were as well. What, what, why did you embrace Tommy Potts, though? Because most people must have been thinking, well, he's good, but he's not playing it right. Ah, uh, but you see, this is the thing where, what we call a tradition here. Yes, uh, now we're in trouble. A, a, a yeah. tradition, you see, like, can be defined by the physical attributes of how we do it, like the finger rolls, the speeds, the tempos, the tunes, the melodies, everything else like that. But my father used to always say, um, when he'd hear a piece of music, he'd say, there's no tradition in that. And then he'd say, oh, there is tradition in that. Because the tradition is feeling. Yeah. The tradition is like a spirit. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place you get to, uh, a, 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 a thing that awakens your heart, your spirit. And so Tommy Potts, went all the way in there. And so he realized that the form and the structure of the tunes are not what the tradition is. The tradition is the feeling and the impassioned source that drives it. And so he just went into it. And so he was the most traditional of all. Okay, here we go. Which one do you want to hear from the Liffey Banks? Uh, maybe the, I was going to play the Dear Irish Boy because it starts out as a scratch on the fiddle, like he, there's a note that squawks. So, and I have played this opening phrase for students in, in master classes many times, and I would play this opening phrase over about 15 or 20 times, just the first bar. And people would eventually absorb what was going on in the first bar. And it was more that happens when other musicians play an entire melody. Wow. Here we go. Tommy Potts. We can all go home now, Martin, after yeah, that. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. It's kind of extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, uh, like, I mean, he was ahead of his time. He was um, he was a, a true artist. Now, your next choice uh, is Jordi Saval, and mm -hmm. which is, or Jordi Saval, but it was Jordi, I think it goes by. Yeah. But this has taken us away from, to some extent, from traditional Irish music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in your own listening experience growing up, mm -hmm. uh, you must have been, as a young fellow, we were being bombarded by all sorts of music. No, no. I, I, di I didn't. I didn't listen to anything oh, except on. traditional music. Until what age? Uh, until seventeen or eighteen. 
But how how do you avoid that? If you know what I mean, you're at well, school. Well, you can you can tune it out. I'm just not interested. I I I would only listen to the long note on a Monday night. I would listen to other folk programs. Um, I would listen to my record collection. I would sit around and play. Yeah, and that was it. Okay, so what age did you start think that start to think there might be something else out there that I could be? Well, listening I had to? I had a friend um, Andrew McNamara, and he played the accordion and stuff like that, and he was quite obsessed with Rory Gallagher. Mm-hmm. And initially, I think he was trying to help me out socially. He was saying, <laughs> you, you need to kind of like start listening to something else. You know, you need to have a few more things in your repertoire here other than Paddy Kenny and Tommy Potts and things, you know. So I, 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 I actually started trying to listen to it. And it was like it was like I was trying to decipher a completely foreign language, like 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 my understanding of meaning and expression in music that I had known through traditional music seemed to have no application here. I was trying to go, what part of this should I be listening to? And I eventually said, I think I kind of like the bass line or something, but Jesus, I don't know, this electric guitar is a pretty grotesque thing. Like, you know, it's it's a harsh sounding, uh, not, not, not interested at all. But gradually he got to me and I began to see the energetic... Um, passionate, wild, expressive world that um, that Rory Gallagher was inhabiting, and bit by bit it expanded to the. Of course, I then suddenly started taking a look at the Beatles, and then it went for that. And I found a record of Benny Goodman. Then I found records of Grappelli, and uh, so by the time I was nineteen, it started to explode. All right, quite all a right. bit, you know, rapidly. But I had I had been a quite isolated from that in the years leading up. Yeah. But it sounds like you were very hardcore, though. Because well, as I, hardcore as you could be, yeah. Because I'd say Tommy Potts would have loved Rory Gallagher. He might have, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was the most traditional of the traditional of the traditional. Did you no harm, though, in the end, really? Jordy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Saval. Yeah. Uh, tell me about him. Well, I, I was living in Chicago at this stage, and I went to see a movie called Tout le matin du monde. I didn't really know what I was going to see, but the soundtrack grabbed me. And the storyline reminded me of something I knew. It was of the storyline of this viol, French viol de gamba player in maybe the 1700s or something like that, um, who's lost his wife and plays to himself, for himself, in a room. And um, he's not concerned with anybody or anything. He's just ex- concerned with this um, transcendent experience of music now Potts had gone through an experience of being through a, a bad he was a fireman and there was a big fire where he lost all his friends and buddies and he kind of went more inwards and reclusive after this and I think got deeper into the music and this St. Colomb after losing his wife seemed to go deeper in as well so I'm watching this movie about early French music and I'm going God this man and he, the depth of his feeling and passion for music is reminding me of Tommy Potts. Mm. And uh, it just was a reminder that, you know, like music is music. And there's a kind of a universality there. And I also began through this album to love early music and to love the music of St. Colomb and, and Marie Marais and all, all kinds of other wonderful composers of the time, which actually is quite comparable to the music of the same period here in Ireland also. Yeah. And uh, it's a particularly beautiful time and beautiful music. Okay, this is uh, Le Player for... Uh, what's the instrument here, by the way? Viol de Gamba. All right.
and that's Jordi Saval, Le Player. The choice of Martin Hayes is with me in studio. Uh, again, gorgeous piece of music, Martin. That uh, You mentioned early music and Irish music mm-hmm. had great similarities around the same time, same period. I know early music covers a wide, yeah, wide yeah. space I mean, of time, but around then. You know, when I hear that and then if I hear our early harp music and stuff like that and go, oh, they're not worlds apart. Yeah. I mean, they are. There's a difference, of course. But... You know, they're speaking to this the, in the same sentiment in some ways yeah. and uh, from the same place of feeling and openness and thoughtfulness, kind of, you know. It's and you, you have, you know, looked at ways of presenting Irish music with this kind of music, I guess, in I, mind. I have programmed it a few times yeah. in things that I do where I kind of set, like this early music and I, I did it last year in Bantry with Steve Cooney mm-hmm. and uh, with uh, Liam Byrne um, where I, I just say play some of the Marin Murray thing for me and Steve play some of this you know 1600s uh, harp music and and he would and it, it was like they, they were both at home in each other's company yeah yeah and do you think that's I mean I, I haven't nobody has heard your new ensemble the yeah, common yeah. the common ground ensemble, but is there there must be a touch of that in there, is there? There is, yeah. There, 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 there are moments have emerged where, it, like, it could be kind of baroque ish, mm. and there's moments where, like, trying to deal with microtonal elements of music have produced us into a kind of a sonic space that's a lot more contemporary. Um, so you just you let the melody guide you and um, you let the your instincts and the instincts of the people and the natural responses g- generate an outcome well you've you've obviously got a huge hinterland musically speaking but when I look at the people in this new ensemble you've got Kate Ellis there on cello mm-hmm. and Cormac McCarthy on piano Kyle Sanna on guitar Brian Donlan bazooki uh, uh, concertina yeah and guests as well yeah 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 um, when you when you put together the collective knowledge of all of those people. There are a lot of there are a lot of places to draw from, aren't there? It's remarkable. I I, I was rehearsing with Cormac McCarthy, you know, and um, at one moment, you know, he was like he he could play Oria the kind of chording. He could say, "Well, Oria the would have done this," or he could like Brad Meldo might have done this. Or he remember a classical piece of music he had played where some chording element like began to make sense, and he was working something out like this, and he was going, and he was lilting at the same time because he knows the tunes, uh-huh. and I was going, ah, oh, this is incredible, like because like all these worlds of information are making themselves available to this tune now, in this one person. Never mind Kate Ellis, like who seemingly can do anything, play yeah. anything, is willing to try, yeah. is willing to courageously engage in any form of music that you present to her, you know? Now, you, at the, at the time of this recording, Martin, because you yeah. gigs in a couple of weeks' time, but the time of this recording, you're rehearsing with this group. Yeah, just I just came out of the rehearsals now, yeah. so I'm, and it's fresh in my mind. But are you, can you already hear the music that this ensemble is going to make or is it a, is it a discovering discovery process? Well, the, the, it's it's both. Um, I like I I would have spent like the last few months kind of assimilating the material, the tunes, making decisions about them, and I I would spend time then kind of sculpting out rough parts for people. Like I would have done very skeletal kind of piano parts and cello parts and harmonium parts and guitar parts, and said here are the parts that I'm imagining. This is the kind of direction I'm going, but. Please take this as the opening 
of a conversation mm. and you take these parts and you develop and scrap them if they don't work. But, you know, let's let's like we, we, we have something to chew on now. So we have an arrangement, but but it can be utterly changed. And it was now, utterly changed. So that was good. So the, the, you're given you're, you're given people room to to develop what what they do. Yeah. But at the same time, this 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 is your band, isn't it? It's the Martin Hayes ensemble. I'm bringing Irish music into this context and I'm kind of making some decisions and choices about where I think it can go. Yeah. But I would be insane to hire musicians of the calibre that's on the stage and not give them their full freedom yeah. to, to give me their but, creative but this, genius. You know? But it is your vision that's this Yeah, setup. it is. Yeah. But it becomes a shared vision then. And like part of my vision in music is making sure that the people on stage get to be 100% who they are. Yeah, yeah. You know, because otherwise we're not using the, the real talent that's there, you know. And what was it like on day one when you all assembled in a room? Is that, is that a, that, I'm sure that can be a tricky enough kind of dance, you know? It, it, it was interesting because like at first, you know, I, 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 on the speaker, I go, here, we'll start with this one. Yeah. Well, I started with a, a tune that I knew that Kate played already. I says, Kate, you did this before. So I, so she played this tune and I knew the Cormac knew it as well. So I let them off. And then I played some arrangements that I had sent to them previously. I said, let's try this. And so they pulled out their sheet music and they kind of just, we started noodling through it and everything was going grand. And then I took a bathroom break or something, you know. And so I leave the room. And by the time I come back, they're having a discussion about chords. When you say, if you play this note yeah. here, if you play that note here, then this will, you know, turn into this and you could do this. And so, you know, I'm I'm just trying to facilitate the conversation that can emerge, in a, you know, around this. But I asked them, I, I, I made it simple in saying, my playing is about revealing and supporting a line of melody. This is not about my playing. It's about this line of melody. So I want you to join me. Mm. in supporting this line of melody. So it's the melody's band yeah, as a, much as it's mine. Do you know a, what I mean? There's a touch of the old-fashioned band leader about this in a way. You know, like there a, is, like yeah, a yeah, Duke yeah. Ellington or uh, one of those yeah, sorts yeah, of yeah. people. Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, he let the musicians loose, but this is the, here's, the, here's, here's the deal, you know? Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. what it's about. There's, there's a structure here. That yeah. there, there are melodies, and all of which I chose, and there are um, basic arrangement concepts which I kind of toss out. But I also know the musicians that I've hired, and, yeah. I, and I know their incredible capacities and talents, and I want that, I want them to be able to deploy that with freedom. Can't wait to hear. Band, I yeah. really can't wait to hear this because I know a lot of these musicians. It's kind of a dream lineup, and, um, and of course we can't play any music by in here now because there isn't any. No, there's yet, nothing. Unless you yet, want to yeah. lilt a couple of tunes, but, <laughs> yeah. but the gigs are happening Saturday the fourteenth of March, and Sunday the fifteenth at the National Concert Hall. Mm -hmm. Martin Hayes and the Common Ground Ensemble. Your next musical choice, I see, and you mentioned him a moment ago, is Steve Cooney. Yeah. Now there's a force in nature. Absolutely, uh, an incredible musician. Um, I, I played with him back in the early 90s. I toured around Ireland a good many times with him and found, I think, every night to be a source of inspiration. I, I found it to be spontaneous and intuitive and I think soulfully connected to the music in, in a very true way, in a very real way. And in recent times, he has taken to uh, interpreting the older harp music of Ireland and he has been researching it and I think his um, knowledge of playing with Shano singers that probably started with Seamus Begley 
and his ability to understand that phrasing and work the guitar around it like no other mm. has informed how he interprets these old melodies. So I like using Shano's concepts maybe to interpret the phrasing of this melody has revealed something incredibly beautiful in our ancient harp music. I think it's a, a revelation, his new recording. It's very beautiful. Aren't we lucky we, that he came here? We have That he showed lucky, up? Because yeah. he, he has, a, has had a massive influence, hasn't he? He's massive, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, a, a, he's one of the most natural musicians I know of, yeah. Steve Cooney there. I'll tell you, Martin, he's, uh, that's an album I haven't heard, so if anybody wants to get their hands on it. It's self-released. Um, the tune is uh, Bantigarna that's Ivy right, yeah. um, from an album called Kjol Arse Klarshi, Tunes of the Irish Harp for Solo Guitar, stevecooneymusic.com. It's beautiful stuff, Martin, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, it we're going to yeah. take a, a quick break and, uh, oh, after the news, Jeff Buckley, Miles Davis, you're branching out. I'm branching out, yeah. <laughs> We'll be right back. <laughs> we'll be back after this. Mm. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special where we get someone to pick the tunes and tonight it's Martin Hayes, uh, fiddle player. Uh, that doesn't quite cover it, uh, but fiddle player nevertheless, mm -hmm. uh, known for the gloaming and all the rest of that, but also uh, playing in a couple of weeks' time at the National Concert Hall with a new setup, Martin Hayes and the Common Ground Ensemble. Actually, just when I say a new setup, it doesn't it doesn't mean the old setups are gone or anything, no, does no, it? No, no, no. Nothing is just gone. A, no, just a yeah, separate. Well, everything is still... It just hit I me. I mean, then. I'll eventually have enough ensembles for every night of the week, <laughs> you know, but like that's... Uh, you know. <laughs> it just hit me as I said <laughs> it <laughs> I went, well, on that bombshell. Mm. So um, we've had some great music so far and there's plenty more to come and maybe we'll just get straight into it. Uh, your next choice is... Uh, it's Benjamin Britten, but it's Jeff Buckley. Mm -hmm. So where'd you come across Jeff Buckley? Uh, tell me it was in New York and Chennai or somewhere like in, that. Well, it? no, I wish. I <laughs> wish I'd ever met him. Uh, I had a very good friend in Chicago that I used to give fiddle lessons to. He, his name was Rob Adams. He would come over um, once a week. And he was only, he, he was maybe almost my, my own age. And, and inevitably the fiddle class would, would turn kind of philosophical. He was a, he was a rare book dealer and then he became an, an art, he owned an art gallery. And, uh, and he liked playing tunes. And so we'd sit around and chat and chat. But really, we were just having tea and philosophical discussions about the, the meaning of music and stuff like that. But he became sick and he passed away um, sometime after that. But I remember the last time I visited him in the, his house, he handed me this CD of Jeff Buckley. He goes, I'm, I'm not sure if you like this or not. But I, it's one album that it's called Grace. He made one album. It's like Tommy Potts. One album, that's it. And he makes this one album and I, I, I can't think of a time when I wouldn't enjoy hearing it. You know, there's some albums I'd like to hear that now and I wouldn't like to hear it yeah. another time. But then there are other albums that no matter when I put them on, I will like them. And Jeff Buckley is one of them.
Corpus Christi Carol from uh, Jeff Buckley from the album Grace, the choice of Martin Hayes, who's uh, with me in studio. Martin, you mentioned Chicago there. Uh, you went. What age were you when you went to America? Did you go? Did you go sort of once and stay, or were you back and forth? More or less went and stayed. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I was there from the age of twenty-two yeah. on, and uh, yeah. So I spent my adult life growing up in America, and hearing. Everything and anything, and I suppose in Chicago, first off, I was exposed to blues. That was the most obvious thing you did in yeah. Chicago was go check out blues clubs. So I I did that quite a lot when yeah. I got there, yeah. and that was that was an experience. Like it was like just another world altogether, you know. And was this now given that you you described yourself earlier as a young as a young teenager being very mm -hmm. conservative and yeah. and and uh, you just devoted yourself to one thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, w was it a great liberation then to be? It Did was. you enjoy I, that feeling? I became a teenager. Yeah, a <laughs> when I arrived yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I caught up on all of that then, yeah. and then I started hearing everything, like and all kinds of seventies fusion and everything that I hadn't heard before. I started listening to, you know, and uh, so the the whole world became right there for me like I thought I couldn't live without Chicago then you know it was yeah. like this was a new musical reality you know and what about bringing your, your your own musicianship into that context then well initially it started out in a very kind of like I, I didn't take myself I for example even at that stage I hadn't imagined that I was going to be um a full-time musician as a career I, I I I thought this was a foolhardy idea I really didn't think I had any possibility had you, had, had you any alternative? Had you another plan? Well, you see, that's the great thing. Like, you know, yeah. when you run out of alternatives, like, you'll end up doing the thing. But uh, so I, I gradually ran out of alternatives. And what I found myself doing was uh, playing in bars in, in Chicago, like Irish bars and things like that. Just, you know, making a few bob, just surviving, but just using my very minimal skills to kind of just play ballads and all kinds of silly, stupid things, you know. But of course, like, it does drive you crazy if you're actually a musician and you're not really doing your thing but you're doing some other kind of nonsense in a bar you, you'll go crazy so you eventually. were playing all the, all the kind of hokey stuff the yes absolutely stuff, yeah. yeah I did like I went to the bottom right like I went to the like yeah I, you couldn't I couldn't have got I couldn't have gone further down to the very bottom of the totem pole here like you know that must have been very hard for you Yes, it was because I, I had left this richness behind me as well. You know, this I had this other depth and richness that suddenly found no place to be yeah. heard or expressed. So like it was kind of like a, a story of a past that was never to be repeated again, uh, an existence that had passed by. And at the end of a gig, you know, you often see it in movies, some jazz musician packing up his saxophone or his piano yeah. at the end of the yeah. closing the piano at the end of the night having played stuff he didn't want to play. Yeah, yeah. Um I know you were earning a living and that's an admirable thing to be at. You have to do it. Yeah. yeah. Fair dues. Uh, but at the same time, when you were leaving one of those bars of an evening, come mm. back to your apartment, yeah, you must yeah. have been fairly miserable, yeah. I yeah, you're soul destroyed, so you live to party. Ah. Oh. Um, and, and you want to be going to parties and having fun like you find the excitement in life in any other area other than in this music forum you know mm. and uh, that went on for a few years like and in truth it was quite self-destructive you know mm. I was really drinking a lot for a finish and just partying all the time and just playing music that I could have played with one hand behind my back and my eyes closed you know half asleep and never had to learn even one of the songs that I was playing yeah you know, so it was completely like 
yeah, you know, I was not doing what I was supposed to do in this world. That was quite clear. Uh, and was it was it was it amounting to self loathing at this point? Um, no, but I think there was pain, yeah. and there was pain that you tried to repress and hide from, mm. and try to distract yourself from. And there was ultimately some destiny that I wasn't fulfilling mm. by doing this. And I, I knew this deep down, you know. So if you roll the clock on a couple of years from playing that bar, you'll find uh, a meditating vegetarian uh, um, open musician who's not playing for a living anymore, but living on the edge financially, but is spiritually liberated and, uh, and kind of beginning to embark on a new journey. Maybe, maybe you had to go through all that. Oh, I think so. Yeah, well, I did. I, I did go through it, so I had to. <laughs> Miles Davis? Yeah. Miles Davis, Blue and Green, the choice of Martin Hayes is with me in studio from the album Kind of Blue. Martin, throughout that, uh, we were both kind of shaking our heads at the many, many moments of sheer beauty. Mm-hmm. And I asked this question not as a smart remark by any means. I'm fully aware of the of your own, uh, of who you are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But do you ever listen to a piece of music like that and think, what's the point in the rest of us even trying anything? I, I, that's that's exactly what I think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it was it, it was in. Yeah, I remember um, I when I was recording my first solo album uh, in Portland, Oregon, Billy Oscar was the engineer. He was a fiddle player himself. And um, somewhere during the evening, I thought I was doing great, actually. I thought, geez, we're, we're making good progress. This sounded good, you know. And uh, he put on a recording. I, I think, I'm trying to think who it was now. It was a violinist. Can't, can't recall the name. Yeah. But it was just shattering. It was so over-the-top beautiful and overwhelming that I, I, I just thought, like, I'm doing nothing here. I, I, what do I think I'm doing here? And, uh, I, I, and, and he just saw that I was beginning to crumble yeah. from, from listening to this incredible... Um, I think it was Yehudi Menuhin. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, I'm listening to this, and then he said to me, kind of with some care, he said, he says, but any note that's played with love... Yeah. you know, is powerful. Yeah. And and I so it made me always res- resort to just the internal integrity of, of how I play a note or a tune, you know, and just say I've got to rely on my own soulfulness for that. But nevertheless, when I hear this um, Miles Davis album, it's a profound beauty that will never stop being beautiful, you know. And would you, uh, as, the, as a fiddle player, and there's no fiddle in that lineup, obviously. Yeah. We are you drawn to any particular musician in that setup? Because that's a super group there with Bill Evans and Coltrane and everybody. I, I'm just drawn to the whole thing. Like I, I'm just like, like first of all, th- there, there's very little chops. Mm-hmm. Like there's very little uh, dexterity being demonstrated. Not that you know, nothing complicated anybody can play. But the dreamscape and the imaginative 
um, playing the freedom, the openness, the confidence, the the delicacy, and just the sheer beauty of the overall composition is just now profound. You, you you got into jazz when you were in Chicago as as, as well as blues, but yeah. jazz in particular. Um, you mentioned early on how the Charlie Hayden Pat Metheny record was a big influence on mm-hmm. on the record you made with Dennis on the Lonesome Touch. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be conscious now that the jazz you listen to then and still listen to plays a part in the arrangements and so on, the gloaming, the new one, the common ground ensemble, etc.? Yeah. yeah, I would. Like, I mean, I've I've always been fascinated with the improvisational freedom of jazz, the 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 that idea of creating the moments as you go along, and and I've always thought that an improvisational space is an important space to create in all performance. Even when you have arrangements and plans, like even with this new ensemble, I I said, okay, so we have a section here that we're working on and we have an arrangement and a plan, but please allow this, the opportunity to expand our contract as needed, Mm -hmm. that this can go on as long as we're feeling it and as long as other people have ideas to contribute, it may evolve and become other things. So I, I usually want, things that I'm involved in to have that possibility of, of new things happening in the performance, if possible, you know, that, that we can, you know, and, I, and I, I love an improvisation where we have to improvise together, where, where it's not like somebody's taking a solo now and we're just playing the pattern and blah, blah, blah. But I like the idea that we can all really listen and move together. Mm-hmm. and that the conversation can be respectful in, in a multi-directional kind of way. And there would be a lot of that going on with the gloaming, wouldn't there? Yes, there was. Yeah, the, the, like Performances, like sometimes we would go out there and we don't know how a tune is ending. Mm-hmm. We don't know how we're getting from this tune to the next one. There's kind of a, a grey fog of possibilities there. And we, we began to relish that fog, that, that ambiguous... Uh, area of, of music making because ideas could happen. Quivine could do something, Thomas would do something, I might try something then, or you know, and we love that, you know. And when you, I'm thinking of yourself and Quivine, you're two, at least when you're on the stage with the Dolomite, two very different types of player. Yeah, absolutely. Are you kind of, uh, are, are, are you two kind of nudging each other all the time? I don't know what the word for it is, but it, it, I watch you and I see yeah. what happens. Well, I think, uh, like, Quivine took a look at what I do and he goes, well, there's no point in doing that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Quivine more than me would have pushed himself into into another direction entirely. But like he had become kind of a, a co like you would think of like the two fiddles working together. But you also begin to see that Quivine is working with Thomas over here mm-hmm. as well in, 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 in improvisation and color and tones and textures. And and then he's joining me on a tune or I'm joining him on a tune. And so the, the the reference point keeps moving around the stage. It's not like two fiddles connected all the time. It's mm-hmm. kind of like it, I could be playing a tune and instead of Quivine connecting with me, he's connecting with Thomas, for example, you know. And that, it, you know, because Thomas is responding in his particular way. And, and that's what that's what gets to people, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. You know, if they're fully conscious of what you're doing mm. or not, the effect of it is that well, that's uh, why people get up on their feet at the end of the opening set. You yeah. Know? Well, the the idea of aliveness, uh, of things being real, of the emotion being real, and of things happening in reality with spontaneity in that moment, and the fact that each performance is possibly 
unique. I think those are important elements to, to have in a performance, if possible, you know. Looking at this list, Martin, you're a great man for beauty. You make no apologies for things beautiful. Uh, I, it seems another one not, coming, yeah, another yeah. one coming up here. Arvo, Arvo, oh Arvo yes, Arvo uh, yeah, yeah, Arvo Pert, Yeah, I, I, I fell in love with his music um, when I was in Chicago too. I think I, I, I discovered this, and I was going, God, what is it? It's old. It's new. It's minimalist. It's not. It's, it's, it's. It was like as if like he, he just took a look at an entire several centuries of early music all the way up to modern classical music and just says, this is what I'm going to write. And it reeks of a kind of a, somebody who has distilled his thinking to a kind of point of knowing exactly what he wants to do and knowing exactly what this music means for him and just doing it. from Arvo Pert, uh, Soma, the uh, choice of Martin Hayes, who's with me in studio tonight. Martin, I'm going to, no, this is unfair, and I'm going back over things you said earlier. Yeah, about. Sure. Um, when you when you, when you were talking about your, your time in Chicago and playing in the bars and playing music, you didn't want to play and all the rest of it, you said, uh, I did go through it, uh, so I had to. Um, mm -hmm. And you also mentioned having lots of philosophical conversations with your friends over a cup of teas and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah. You you seem to me to be a very philosophical kind of a person. But have you figured yeah. out? Have you figured it all out yet? Well, I don't <laughs> think I. You know, the best person to ask on that would always be my wife, and mm -hmm. she will assure you that I haven't. Figured you haven't it all figured out it out yet because no. you need somebody up close that sees you every day, and you yeah, know what, what, damn well you haven't figured it out. Yeah, I could what, pretend I have. But yeah, I but haven't. what you said there—that's quite profound. What you said, you know, I did go through it, so I had to. Yeah. Do you kind of do you, do you, do you feel? I I I I I know where you're getting. Like uh, in, in, am I saying that there's a destiny yeah. to one's life here or yeah. not? Well, that's, yeah. I I mean I do. I think to 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 come to who I am now. If that was any, and I feel like I've arrived at the right place in my life, doing the right things that mm -hmm. I'm supposed to do. That in fact I had to. Um, break free of the imprisonment of the place I put myself in the beginning mm -hmm. as a learner of, of this tradition of music and of becoming quite conservative and locked off and disconnected from my contemporary world and then um, leaving the culture that fostered nurtured and cared for me and landing in a place where I was unknown and where there was no seeming opportunity or care for the thing that was most dear to me mm. was a painful transition and um, and 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 with that transition, there was a period of being lost. Mm. And but the wonderful thing in America is it's the land of redemption and rebirth. Yeah. And in that land, I was able to be reborn in a certain sense, not in the modern Christian reborn sense, like, but uh, reborn in that I could decide who I was all over again. I could decide what all this was. I could examine this music and say, was my connection to this nothing more than a sentimentality? Or was it a kind of a naive, you know, love and connection to my family and background that made me think it was so great? Or, you know, even my own Christian heritage, like, was that actually so important? Maybe Buddhism made more sense. Maybe I should meditate. Maybe eating meat was wrong or bad. Maybe I should become a vegetarian. Well, I became all of those things. Mm. And um, and I started reading, I suppose, like 
things like the 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 Vedas and and the the Indian scriptures and Buddhist texts and uh, you know and hanging out in kind of alternative bookstores and hippie hangouts and listening to all kinds of other music and just kind of just you know tossing it all up you know mm -hmm. and just trying to see where I would actually land at the end of all of that and so I landed back with the tunes I grew up with I landed back realizing that I in fact all the time was carrying a complete language of music with me and that this language of music was the thing that I should actually explore and that I should just go there and no matter what the results were, you know, without knowing the outcome, knowing whether people would like it, knowing whether there could be a career or not, I decided I have nothing to lose. I will just jump in. And uh, so I began a, a career as a musician where I just uh, played what I was feeling, played it the way I thought I should most enjoy for myself. And, um, and gradually out of that, a career emerged. Music there from uh, John McLaughlin, the choice of uh, Martin Hayes. That's kind of extraordinary, Martin. That's a piece called uh, called Joy. Who's on there now? Because it's not just John McLaughlin. It's from an album called Shakti. Well, John John McLaughlin, El Shankar, and um, uh, Zakir Hussain yeah. uh, are the are the main musicians there. And uh, I remember hearing that I was at visiting a friend's house in Chicago, and he says, "Have you ever heard this?" And he just popped it on, and I my head exploded. I was going, holy God, who are these? What is this? Yeah. I've never heard anything like it's it. It's on a whole other level of Indian musicians. Oh, it? So I, it, it, it kind of sent me off on a journey discovering Zakir Hussain, John McLaughlin, uh, the Indian music. And then that uh, next thing I'm listening to Mahavishnu, the next thing I'm listening to fusion. You know, it's just one thing leads to the next. You know, you follow a few threads and there you are. You've been to India, haven't you? Yeah. And, and did you get to play with any Indian musicians? Um, I did, yeah. I got to play with some very fine musicians in uh, Delhi. And uh, in, yeah, I, I, got, I met lots of them. And I, I met uh, Subramaniam, the great Indian fiddle player. And I met Zakir Hussain while I was there as well. Um, you know, India is just incredible. I'd always been fascinated with the country, like spiritually and musically and everything else, you know. So it's just... A, another reality again it's it's uh, maybe not for you but i mean i i don't know a whole lot about indian music but i love it and, yeah and i, I don't know anything either but i love it also but i find it very uh, I f it seems to me to be on a level which is sort of beyond the rest of us well you know? like the thing with I indian music was that like f uh, there's intentionality behind it in terms of how they see its purpose and its purpose is quite spiritual and its purpose is to create peace and harmony, is to elevate the soul, is to bring us to another place. And so they're, they're quite clear that that's what their music is about. And I thought, I like this. Yeah. You know, between them now and Arvo Pert and Tommy Potts, I'm cured, you know. Next choice, Martin. Uh, Johnny Gandelsman. Um, I mean, it's 
Johnny Gandelsman is a friend and a musician I've gotten to know over the years because uh, he's he's a fiddle player in the quartet Brooklyn Rider and part of Yo Yamaha's uh, Silk Road project. And um, of course, I love the music of Bach, and I find just as Arvo Pert is a is a uh, is a balm for the soul, so is the the music of Bach, and in my case in particular, the Bach partitas and sonatas are just like a divine, prayerful experience of music. And I got into play with with Johnny quite a bit over the years, and he has taken a great interest in Irish music and Irish fiddle playing, and in how I would try to interpret tunes. And he has very graciously acknowledged me on a number of occasions in his interpretation of Bach, uh, which I have been enormously flattered by. And uh, so he he because you recorded with Blue, Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn Rider, Rider. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I have, yeah. And anyway, so Johnny has made a beautiful album of of the the Bach partitas and so Just before we we hear this, uh, because Bach comes up quite a bit with people who who maybe aren't interested in classical music at all or don't feel they know anything yeah, yeah. about it. But everybody likes Bach. Oh, how could you not? And I've met, I mean, you know, I think you know, like that's how but, I feel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, jazz musicians like Bach. Yeah. A lot of traditional musicians like Bach. I've, I've met hip-hoppy people who love Bach, you know, yeah, but, yeah, and, yeah. and they all say, well, it swings and so on. So, But there must be more to it than just the swing that, that, that appeals it's, to us. You, the feeling you get from the music of Bach was that he unlocked something, he discovered something, he reached a kind of a level of perfection in some way, like just a, like a beautiful, symmetrical... Uh, beauty. I mean, the way it reveals the violin in such a beautiful way. Um, it it's like a. I had a book called Gödel Escher Bach. Did you ever see that book? You know the the Escher. Yes, the painting like the, thing, the yeah. staircase. Yeah. Well, when you listen to Bach, it's yeah. it's ascending, and then the next thing, it's it's still ascending again. Like how yeah. that, and so he's got all this in, ingenuity of of how this thing can endlessly renew itself and keep keep re-emerging like this so so these beautiful arpeggios never finish it's just this incredibly complete endless loop of of, of beauty really and what we've got here is the violin partita number two the third movement Music there from uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, the uh, Saraband from the Partita for solo violin. And uh, that was um, Johnny Gandelsman. Yep. Who you play with? Yeah, in Brooklyn Rider. Yeah, yeah. he's a, a wonderful fiddle player. And um, he claims to have learned something from Irish fiddle music about how he likes to interpret Bach. And he has, you know, accredited me a little bit. I've been very flattered every time he, he has done so. And but, has he, did, did he have any knowledge of Irish music before he met you? I, I don't think so, no. Because, you know, um, you, when you worked with Brooklyn Rider, what I, what I loved about it was, I mean, I'd heard, you know, Irish music and classical music <laughs> apparently 
put together in the yeah. past, and I thought it was awful. You know, I couldn't yeah, stand it. Can it. Be you know, dreadful stuff. Dreadful, yeah. But but the harmonies and things these guys were coming up with were really interesting, and, and without without making it unlistenable. I mean, oh they, no, you know, I mean, the, the, and and part of it like. Um, was done by the, the I, so I'm sitting in a house in Brooklyn with these guys. Now, long story short, was they used to come and hear me play gigs when they were teenagers. The two Jacobson brothers from from Brooklyn Rider in New York. I, I didn't know this, but they they got into it. And he, uh, Colin's uh, girlfriend was Irish, and she gave him my album. This is he he was in Juilliard at the time. Anyway, years later, they invite me to play with them out of the blue. Or to come and meet them, and so we we start thinking about this collaboration. I, I'm sitting in a house in Brooklyn with these guys, and they're inviting in arrangers and writers, and they're writing things themselves. And I'm sitting there, kind of innocently enough, just coughing up tunes here, you know. And the next thing, fellas are arriving, doorbells are ringing, and there's more arrangements arriving. And one of the arrangers was this fella Kyle Sana, who's the the guitar player that I'm working with now in the upcoming project. But he wrote a lot of these arrangements for Brooklyn Rider and Johnny Gandelsman is is the fiddle player in there and he has really taken to interpreting Bach and to just kind of really going down that journey and using some of his experience around Irish music as a way to kind of find new ends into it and, and to reimagine the phrasing and the bowing and stuff like that. Anyway, he's he's truly a wonderful musician. When you mentioned Arvo Part earlier, you said he sounds like someone who has distilled his thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, down to what, what he what he's about, what he mm-hmm. knows he's about. Have you have you reached that point yourself? Do you think, in terms of distilling your thinking? Well, I'm reaching it. I mean, it's an ongoing process, and and you're always trying to kind of um, be clear about the reasons you're doing something, and and uh, and the purposes and the outcome you're aiming for. Uh, because the clearer and more thought out and more free that thinking is, the more empowered you are, the more confidently you can deliver it and the the less fearful you are about what it is. You know, so you become more open and more yourself, I think, as you distill that thought process going on. You know, And in terms of what your thinking is, in terms of music, now you, I think you touched on this at the very beginning, it's just all about the melody. For you've, me, yeah, you've got because to that, you've got it down to that. Th- th- that's what it is. I mean, it's all about the melody. But then again, all my collaborations are about all everything else that can be added yeah. to the melody well, in some ways as well. Yeah. Like so, but but the the melody is the is the is the is the the DNA. Mm. It's the the guiding principle. It's the it's the 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 valuable nugget handed to you by the tradition. It's the it's the thing that contains the beauty and power itself. So um, paying homage to it in a certain sense and um, acknowledging its supremacy over the other musical ideas that you wish to bring in uh, kind of puts you in a, in, in a certain kind of musical position relative to the melody then, you know. Yeah, but does that not mean, uh, in a sense, that all the things that make something wonderful mm-hmm. are, are when you start to mess with the melody or fool oh, around yeah, with yeah, the yeah. melody, yeah. And, and and the harmonies, of course, that are that of you, course, yeah, talking yeah. about those arrangements those guys yeah, made, yeah. they're all bringing stuff to the melody that's not, in a sense, supposed to be there. Yeah, that's true. Well, if I do nothing but the melody, they can bring it there. But if I decide I'm playing an East Clare version of the melody here and you better get on board with this East Clare <laughs> thing, then it's very hard for them to find uh, the connection point, you know, or if I decide to go, I'll sleeve lucre on them or something like, you know, it, it can't, like... 
<laughs> I'm going to go all sleeve lucre on you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, not that I could really, but uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, so I, I am like for me, like, you know, a lot of the other parts of traditional music are stylistic elements related to a region. And I love all of these things. Don't get me wrong. Um, but melody is universal. And so it's the universal element of this music that I carry forward when I want to engage with musicians who come from any background at all. I'm not saying, you know, if I'm engaging with a, a classical musician, sometimes they go, oh, I need to know how to play triplets and rolls and all these fiddly things you do. And I go, no, you don't. You need to hear mm. this line of melody like any line of melody that exists on the planet. Gotcha. Yeah. And the strength is in the quality of these melodies that we have. Speaking of collaborators, your next choice is Bill Frizzell. Yeah. Who's a, who's a musician who reminds me of you, you know, as mm. would Miles and others. That kind of, I don't know what it is. I don't have the musical vocabulary to describe it, but I know the feel. Um, what have you chosen from Bill Frizzell? Because he's made a lot of wonderful albums. Oh, God, he has. And uh, I, I, I met Bill Frizzell when I was living in Seattle. This is kind of, we're now to Seattle anyway, at least. Um, we, we used to eat in a few of the same restaurants. And before that, I just had the ECM recordings. I didn't even know he lived in Seattle, but I, I ran into him anyway. And we, we ended up having a lot of mutual friends and eventually we got to play together. But the thing about Bill that, that was interesting for me was that um, his playing has evolved over the years to the point where he's free of the restraints of a genre. He doesn't even care to call himself a jazz musician mm. or any kind of musician. He just makes music. And he makes it simple if he wants to make it simple. It can be complicated if he likes. He doesn't care. And I like that. And the guy, above all else, like everything he does has a kind of a mood and a feeling and, and a space, you know, like there, there's very little stuff happening that that doesn't have this definite mood and feeling Nicely, Bill Frizzell, tell your ma, tell your pa, the choice of Martin Hayes, who's with me in the studio. Martin, in the, in the time we have left, uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna plunge into the mystic now. Um, when I think of you know your the you know your father and your uncle and the people around you, the old people that you knew, mm -hmm. um, have you have you figured out where where this music comes from? No, I don't, and um, it's it's. Uh it's it's difficult. I I mean, the, there's a great yearning to know what was it like, <laughs> what was it like before, you know. Yeah. And I think Steve Cooney has made a very good effort at telling us what it was like it's a few hundred years ago. The harp album, yes, yeah. 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 Um, I I I hear the fiddle playing of Junior Crahan and other fiddle players from West Clare. Uh, whose style and form of playing was formed before recorded music was heard. Yeah. And I get a good indication of how things were. Uh, I hear the first recordings of the Ilum Pipes. I get a good sense of how things might have been, how set dancers dance, how Connemara Shano singers sing. Um, it, it yeah, tells but what me about, something yeah. of the past. But. 
Yeah, but that's something you could kind of study, you know? Yeah, yeah. What about, you know, when you're up there on the stage and, you know, your eyes are closed mm-hmm. and your hair's flying yeah. and it's all happening and the audience are going, wow, this is... And, and people start using words like magical and all that. Yeah. Sort of. what's, going, what's going on in your head? Hopefully nothing. Right. I mean, like, in, in, in the better moments of music, it is just simply music that is taking place and you're an observer of it just like everybody else in the room. And, and, um, and, and again, I know what you're saying, but how do you observe something that you are, inverted commas, creating yourself? Well, you know what? When you're doing it well, you're not creating anything. Mm, that's uh, why I put it's it in just happening. Commas, yeah. It's just happening. You're just there. It's just happening. You are part of it. You're not in control of it. Um, part it, of what? You're part of the music that's happening. Like, it's just uh, kind of coming through you. You're, from where? Ah, oh, I don't know. Um, like, I suppose, like, on a basic sense, you've internalized the music. Mm-hmm. So the music physically exists in your body. So your body plays the music. Your body gestures the music. Your chest opens up to reveal the feeling of it. Your 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 head goes back to let you physically open up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the rhythm moves in your body. That's in a very physical sense. That that that's what's taking and, place. And also, but, in, but beyond it, that, there, there's also, I suppose, uh, I mean, like maybe one can imagine a spiritual level, or at least like the area of intention and feeling, which is somewhat intangible. And we are hoping that that feeling is created and communicated, and connected with the audience, and that a feeling larger than you as the musician is beginning to take place and that you are a facilitator of music, that you are an allower of music. You're just a conduit. You, you allow the music to be and then it's there. See, I've, I've heard singers in particular talk yeah. about ghosts, other, you know, the previous, all the singers that have been there before them, all part yeah, of what's I, coming out. I mean, out. I have on occasions, like as a, as a mental exercise, close my eyes and say, okay, Tommy Potts, take it. Yeah, yeah. take it because I'm making a mess of it here. Uh, I'm too concerned about something. So just come to me, somebody. Come to me, something. Like, take it. Just take it from me. Like, just, I'll be your vessel. Just play. And have you had a sense on any occasion of that actually happening? Well, I do know that when you open up that way, it can. It's when you let go and uh, it's when you allow the thing to be is when it actually takes place. Uh, when you're grasping at it and controlling it, uh, that's when you struggle and uh, that's when things are not happening and flowing. And would this realisation or this sense of it come to you just through being a, a, a practitioner or would the, the studies you've done, you know, and looking at Indian and Buddhist scriptures and all the rest of it, would that be part of that? Yes, everything like yeah. would, would all be part of it. Like there's a sense in which a, uh, you you either believe you're in a spiritual reality or you don't. And the world is clearly divided on that. And many musicians wouldn't necessarily concur with that. But I'm one of the musicians that feels and thinks in that way and um, and believes in that. And, uh, and one could argue that maybe I use that process to open up something that's more obvious and elemental in me. But nonetheless, uh, I, I, I have faith in the unseen realities because mm-hmm. the seen reality is already quite a spectacle. 
it is. Yeah, so beyond the internal then, there's something mm. external at work. I, I, th I think so, in, in opening up. I mean, if, you know, like, I mean, the Greeks were talking about the muse. What were they talking about? Mm. You know. Um, Arvo Pert is talking about these things too. Um, if you go back to that movie on um, St. Colomba and Tula Matan, you know, you can see a man using music as a prayerful expression. If I go back to Tommy Potts, I can essentially regard him as praying through his music. Mm. So, um, so that that whole sense way of looking at it makes sense to me. And there's a tie-in then with the notion people would have had. I don't know if they still say it. I'm sure they still say it. You know, a, a youngster like you, you know, taking off on the fiddle and people say, he's very gifted, that guy. He's got a gift. Well, music is a gift. I mean, like in, in that, um, like it's a beautiful thing to get to carry through life and a beautiful way to engage in life and to interact with the world. So it's a beautiful gift to have. A gift in the sense that, I didn't have to do anything to figure out how to do it. Yeah. That's wrong because like yeah. I had to struggle to figure out how to play mm -hmm. and if 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 it was all gifted I I the question would be why are there so many things I can't do. But anyway, I like yeah, the give it is a gift but it has to be understood as I mean I think we all have gifts and we all have talents and we all have capacities and the question is are you willing to make the move, take the steps to embrace, to discover what that is. But there's life. definitely, I mean, I, the, the gift, somebody said to me once that the, the, the gift thing was, well, that would ha happen in a, in a Christian kind of country, you know, they talk about somebody who's gifted. Yeah. But in, in another place, in, mm -hmm. like Ireland, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'd say, oh, he got that from the fairies. He got that or from the fairies. Or he went to the crossroads and met the devil yeah. or whatever it is. But there's a supernatural element to this. That's right. Well, I mean, I, like a, a lot of old players, I mean, you could t think of um, Seamus Ennis or you could think of Junior Crahan talking about the fairies. And like in some ways, it's just uh, when they tell a fairy story and the music coming from that, they're addressing on a deeper level the mysterious and unknown elements of music that inspire and move them the deeper uh, components from, from, from without that, that somehow influence and drive them and the one that they try to open to. So when you hear music addressed to the fairies in Irish music, in a sense, it's kind of, a, it, it's, you know, it's really representing that other mm. way of thinking. But like, like Beethoven or like, you know, just opening up to a divine inspiration in a sense, you know, or like Bach, you know, dedicating every piece of music to the, but where did he do it to um, the greater joy of man and God? Well, he knew what he was doing, so I wouldn't well, argue. I wouldn't argue with him. Exactly. <laughs> Your uh, second last choice is Radiohead. Yeah. Uh, so this is not divine. No, well, it's, it's something it's, different. It's, yeah, but, but it's need, very wonderful you too. Need, you, need, you need the other as well, don't you? You do, yeah. <laughs> Radiohead and Airbag, the choice of uh, Martin Hayes, closet Radiohead fan. Yeah. yeah I used go. to vacuum the house in Seattle, like with my he headphones on, like listening to Radiohead, you know. 
I wish we could talk about Radiohead now for half an <laughs> yes, hour. Yes, I know, they're wonderful. But we, Just, we, we've, uh, we've only got time for one more track. Yeah. Martin, you've been uh, extraordinarily uh, generous with your words tonight and I really appreciate it. it was really, I really enjoyed talking to you. I always well, likewise, do. Likewise, same here. It's good to see it. we yeah. can do it without pints. Exactly. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, um, just before you go, um, these, these shows, Martin Hayes and the Common Ground Ensemble, We've discussed what it's about earlier on, so yeah. it's 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 your thing, but you've got these extraordinary musicians, and you're letting them, you're letting them loose too. Kate Ellis, Kyle Sanna, Cormac McCarthy, Brian Donlan, uh, you'll have guests as well: David Power on yeah. pipes, Sheila yeah. Denver, yeah. Shan No Singer, also Correct. plays yeah, harp, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, and is there if, if you were if you were pitching this to me as a record company executive, musically, mm-hmm. what can people expect from these two concerts at the concert hall? Um, not, is, this is not a trad band. No, this is not a trad band. But um, I think the the central element is a line of melody yeah. of our deep tradition, both old melodies and more recent melodies. But it, it's about uh, a feeling of. I think it's it's just about a feeling and and about a journey. Uh, I I I can't give you the elevator pitch for this music, well, unfortunately. You've, but you've, it's a you've given me enough to, <laughs> to to go along. Yeah, I'll go I'll go see that Saturday the fourteenth of March and Sunday the fifteenth at the National Concert Hall. Martin Hayes and the Common Ground Ensemble. The gloaming still exists. It Everything does. else still exists. It all exists. And uh, Martin, thanks a million for coming in. Really appreciate it. And you're going to finish with what? Keith Jarrett. Yeah, it's a it's a tune called Ritual Prayer. He's a musician, I think you really identify with. Oh God, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, he's another one that has experienced some incredible level of freedom, and his solo improvisations are just like a divine and inspired thing. Um, I, I, the first I heard of him, I woke up listening to an NPR radio program many years ago, and Keith Jarrett was on talking about music. I didn't know who he was, but I heard this guy go. This guy is profound. I, I am absolutely going to have to check his music out. So I became a huge Keith Jarrett fan then, you know. Martin, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.